2 Corinthians chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, as ourselves, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written... I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Thank you, Peter. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you. And uh, this is the third of a little series of uh, five talks, so I think I'll be with you two more times after today. I'll just move this forward for normal-hearted people. Um, Let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your many blessings, new mercies this morning, and we thank you for the scriptures open in front of us, 
for your Holy Spirit who enables the word to come to us with fresh power. We pray that as we think together for these few minutes, you would be pleased to teach and help us to receive, rejoice in, and live out your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, this uh, little series in 2 Corinthians, we come today to chapter 4. And I want to begin by telling you that um, about 25 years ago, I went to a breakfast. I was invited to go to a breakfast. Uh, a young pastor I was with church leaders, and we were to meet an American who was um, at that stage drawing thousands and thousands of people to his church. And the aim was that we would learn and listen and take on board some of the things that he was doing so well. And I remember sitting at this breakfast, and he sat at one end, and he looked absolutely like a movie star. He was tanned, he was young, he just had a holiday in the Whit Sundays, and the other pastors around the table, the clergy from Sydney, it looked like corpses had just gathered around the table, grey, old, tired, lost people, and this dynamic guy at the end. And I remember being completely sold by this and thinking, look, it's just so obvious. This guy is so lively, he's so enthusiastic, he's so great, and we're so sleepy, and we're so old, and we're so grey. No wonder nothing is working. We need to be like him. But would it surprise you that um, now, 25 years later, the church that he pastored has largely dissolved, and he himself has largely been discredited for his um, private life, whereas the Guys sitting around the table, these old pastors who I was looking at, have gone on faithfully, steadily, and fruitfully. Something like this is facing the Apostle Paul in the two Corinthian situation. We're told in chapter 5, verse 12, that there were people in the church now who took pride in the look. They took pride in the look, the face. And so the apostle has to make a long defense of his ministry in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 to explain that the gospel is much different from the ways of the world. He's not just defending himself, you know, please don't think badly of me. He's defending the cause of Christ for the honor of Christ and for the good of the Corinthians. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks, he's put an emphasis on the gospel reaches the heart, not just the face, and it lasts forever. It's not just some quick fix. In chapter 2, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he twice says, we do not lose heart. Chapter 4 verse 1, chapter 4 verse 16, we don't give in. We're tempted to give in. We're tempted to be discouraged. He says we don't give in. He says we don't give in when people don't believe. And we don't give in, he says, though we have declining powers. This is a very timely phrase, I think. Uh, it is absolutely true that in the present context of the country in which we live in. Disinterest in Christianity is probably on the rise. Uh, as I mentioned in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, a, a chaplain said to me, you know, when I began my ministry, people would say, well, we respect your Christianity, but we don't share the faith. Now he says people say we don't respect your Christianity and we certainly don't share your faith. 
And the church has got no one really who will sort of stand up and impress people. I mean, John Dixon may be one of the best to do that. But there's just not that many people who you can say, come, this will be impressive. And then when you add the feeble communication of a preacher into a camera, as I've experienced the last couple of weeks, and even the unimpressive crowds that gather in the churches, and then, of course, just add our preference for doing more comfortable things. Would you not rather do something more comfortable than share the gospel? Would you not rather go home and have coffee and watch television and then go to bed? You would, I'm pretty sure. So we could easily lose heart. And Paul says, no, we don't give up on the task. This is not, he says, because we're wonderful and we're powerful, but because God has told us facts which change everything. And I want to look at these facts with you very quickly. I've changed the two points that are in your outline. They're basically the same, but I've changed the two points. And so the first one is don't let unbelief get you down. And the second one is don't let weakness get you down. First of all, don't let unbelief get you down. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. He says, verse 1, we have this ministry. The ministry he's talking about is the ministry which he's been talking about in chapter 3, that the gospel of Jesus brings new life to people. They're reborn. There's nothing more wonderful for a pastor than to see a person get reborn. There's nothing more wonderful than to have, as every pastor will tell you, somebody who sort of comes up at the end of a course or a sermon Uh, Just occasionally this happens and they treat you as if you've just given them a billion dollars because the penny has dropped and they've been reborn. And there's nothing, says the Apostle Paul, like bringing the, the fellowship that we have with God where the barrier is removed, no condemnation. And this is forever. It's not a fading thing. He says in verse 1, we have this ministry by his mercy. Our salvation comes by mercy trace your salvation back and it goes back to the mercy of God and he says our ministry our service comes from God's mercy as well it's a privilege and God is not looking for successful people he's looking for faithful people our job is not to solve the world our job is to sow the seed And we cannot make converts through Christianity Explained. I wish I could. I wish every time 20 or 2 gathered for Christianity Explained, they would all just become believers, but it's beyond us. We can't build numbers just like that in a Sunday school or a youth fellowship or a church, but we can be faithful. And he says in verse 2, we don't play games with the truth. We don't trick people with half-truths. We don't hide the truth away. You can imagine the false teachers in Paul's context, had produced a very attractive gospel. Just trimmed it so that it was polished and smooth and sweet and attractive. And he'd removed all the hard truths. I was talking to a Christianity Explained group some years ago and I sped over quite quickly the subject of judgment and hell. As you do, you just sort of say, and of course there'll be terrible consequences if you don't take this seriously. And a businessman who was a visitor put his hand up in the middle of the group and he said, say more about hell. So I just said what the New Testament says, this and this and this and this and this and this. And when I'd finished, he said, now that makes sense. And he put everything in context. 
by, by basically telling me to say the hard truths. Well, Jesus, of course, would uh, speak sweetly to people like the woman at the well. Would you like to have living water? But then he would talk to her about repentance. The Apostle Paul would talk to the Athenians in Acts 17 about creation. But then he would talk about judgment. And if the good news is such good news as it is good news, we ask the question in verses 3 and 4, why don't people agree with that? Why don't they see it? If I was to go knocking on the doors of Linfield or Kalara and say, you know, this is a very sad and uh, insecure time, and I have something to tell you which is true and will give to you not only great security today but forever, I could just imagine door after door after door closing. Why is it? The Apostle Paul says it's because people, verses 3 and 4, are spiritually blind These are incredible verses, chapter 4, 3, 4, 5, and 6, because they describe the spiritual battle that is going on, whether you believe it or not. In verse 4, he says the devil blinds people. In verse 6, he says the Lord shines into people. And in verse 5, he says in the middle of this, we tell people the facts of Christ. The blindness in verse 4 explains why you who are here this morning, and I'm not talking about all of you, but I presume many of you, will look at the person of Christ in the New Testament and you'll say he's the king of kings. He's the most important person in the universe and he's the most important person in my life. Somebody else will look at the same information and say it doesn't interest me in the slightest because there's a blindness. It's not that the information is confusing. Paul has already said it's very plain. But there is a blindness. I've just had a few days away and I've been reading a book by a man whose intelligence staggers me. um, He was, until he died, the professor of modern history at New York University, had been teaching in Cambridge and Oxford. Just reading his stuff is just mind-boggling in its intelligence. But as he dies... And as he considers the faith of Christianity, he says in the book, he considers it the intellectual sin of the century for somebody to tell another person that they have information about the future which they think is persuasive. What a remarkable thing for a very intelligent man to say. And he's looked, you see, I presume in some way at the information and he said, I'm against it even as he dies, highly intelligent. Another person, perhaps even a simpler person, will look at the evidence of the resurrection and they'll say this is absolutely wonderful. And the reason, Paul says in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, is because God has solved the blindness by shining and has caused them to see with brand new eyes. So the devil blinds, the Lord shines, That little quote in chapter 4, verse 6, that uh, where God says, let there be light or let light shine, could be a reference to Genesis. You remember, let there be light. It could be a reference to Isaiah 9. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. It could be a reference to Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, where suddenly the bright light shone. But the principle is exactly right, isn't it? God shines to bring people from darkness to light. 
And uh, if you want to read in a, a fun book sometime, read the biography of William Haslam, the preacher in the 19th century who was converted in the middle of his own sermon. So there he was. He was a pastor. He was not a believer. His people knew he was not a believer. His people were trying to evangelize him, even him, even as he did his job as a pastor. And then one Sunday, he's speaking about Jesus in the middle of the sermon. He suddenly, the lights go on, and he starts speaking like a believer. And a visiting pastor at the back stands up and calls out, your pastor's been converted. And the whole congregation stand and sing the doxology over and over and over again. Because God shone into his dark heart. What does God normally use when he shines? Verse 5, it's people who speak of Christ. We point people to Christ. We're like John the Baptist. We say, don't go to me. Yes, you may like, you may like me. It's possible that you'll like me, but go to Christ. Because I can't save you or solve your problems. Go to Christ. And we therefore, says Paul, avoid pointing people to ourselves we point people to Christ. When I was a pastor in North Sydney um, at St Thomas's for 30 years, it seemed to me in the 90s that occasionally I would hear people had led their friends to Christ. It was always a joy. In the 2000s, people would take opportunities to speak of Christ to their friends. But in the 2010 to 20 period, when I would ask people if they'd like to come up and share an opportunity they've had, the numbers decreased hugely because the people like me are finding it more and more difficult to know how to even connect on the subject of Christ. And I think we should take this to God in prayer and we should say to him, we're finding this much more difficult. It's beyond us. And unless you help and open doors, we're really not going to do this with any boldness. So I have a simple ABC, which is that you should ask God to help you. You should ask him to make you be brave, to say something, and see you should carry something in your purse or wallet that you can give when you've had a brief conversation. Maybe your invitations to your series that are coming would be a good starting point. Well, Paul says he doesn't lose heart in the face of unbelief. He knows the one who called him. He knows the one who shone in him. And so like a river going down a hill, he may hit a rock. He may hit a tree. He just keeps moving around because he's not going to stop. He knows God is in charge. Like a vine going up a fence, he hits a beam. He's not going to stop. He's going to go round because he knows that God is at work. And every believer in this room has been shone into by God. God is still at work in the 21st century. He's not stopped shining and we must not stop serving. So that's the first thing. Don't lose heart in the face of unbelief. Secondly, don't let weakness get to you. Paul has mentioned this great task of sharing the gospel of Jesus, and we might ask the question, why doesn't he get some great people to do it? Why doesn't he just raise up some movie stars and some sport heroes and some models and people who will really impress the world? And we're told in chapter 4, verse 7, that God deliberately chooses ordinary people in order that he might rightly get the glory. And he deliberately uses weakness. You see verse 7, this famous verse, we have treasure in pots, 
because it's the plan of God that he be glorified. And in verse 10, our bodies are frail in order, it's deliberate, that his life, his power would be seen in us. So across the centuries, as you know, God has used very ordinary people, simple, frail, eccentric, often unattractive people. Sometimes he does use very clever people and sometimes he uses very gifted people and very attractive people, but he's not looking for stars. He's looking for people like us. And all of us are clay. Scientifically, this is true. Theologically, this is true. We're clay. And if we think too highly of ourselves, he will humble us. And if we think too lowly of ourselves, he lifts us and encourages us. So he chooses people like us, and then in verses 8 to 9, he also controls our circumstances. Our circumstances may be terrible. The circumstances my wife and I are going through at the moment are the worst we've ever been through. 2020 has been our most difficult year, without a doubt. And God controls the circumstances. He tells us in these verses that we may be facing great difficulties, But his hand is on the dials of the furnace. Just as the Apostle Paul says back in chapter 2, he had trouble, but he was still caught up in the triumphal victory. And so you may feel occasionally that everything is just too much. And at the same time, God promises that he will sustain you. You may feel as though you are in a furnace and God's hand is on the dial absolutely perfectly. The false teachers, of course, were probably escaping trouble completely. But Jesus did not escape trouble, and Paul did not escape trouble, and we will not escape trouble, especially if we seek to be faithful. When Paul says in chapter 4, verse 10, that we're dying in order that we might give you life, he's probably talking about that take-up-your-cross principle, that uh, when the believer takes Jesus seriously, the believer can often look as though they're missing out on the great treats of the world and yet the gains of Christ outweigh the treats of the world and the Lord is at work well in these last verses chapter 4 verses 13 to 18 Paul has two great certainties the first one verse 14 he says in the long term there is resurrection waiting up ahead for me And in the short term, verse 16, there is renewal every day. Now, friends, if you just don't remember anything else from this morning, I hope you'll be able to go away and you'll say to yourself, despite all the frailties and all the difficulties, there is a resurrection ahead. And every day, God is at work to renew his people. I don't think the world in which we live in has got anything to compare with this. The average person is so short-sighted. Listen to the conversations in cafes of what people are talking about. It is so trivial. It is so vacuous. And Christ has told us that there is a resurrection, a, a, a goal, a home awaiting. Nor does the average person in Sydney have any joy day by day at God at work in them. But the Christian does. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, we are going somewhere. We're going somewhere glorious, lasting, and Christ-centered. Just as Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And I will come and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. If this were not true, said Jesus, I would have told you. And Paul says, we remember that he rose. Yes, he did. And then he says this wonderful thing, and he will raise us with you to present us together with Christ. What a remarkable thing to say to the Corinthians, who were such a problem people. I feel so sorry for the person in this world who is genuinely going nowhere except to burial and worse. But Paul says, God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us and present us with Jesus. In the short term, he says in verse 16, he renews us every day. New mercies, new grace, new faith, new hope, new love, new perseverance. We wake up each morning and we say there are new mercies coming today. There are new mercies coming today. They're flying in like Elijah's ravens. They're coming to us every day. And God is at work to make us new every day. So he finishes in verse 18 by saying, in the light of this glory to come, we can actually see that our troubles are brief And they are light because glory is so long and so weighty. And this is the world that we live in and this is what God has called us to be. So don't, my friends, let unbelief get to you. Don't let weakness get to you. Be the people of Christ in this very needy world. Ask him to help you. Ask him to make you brave perhaps carry something useful to give. I remember a preacher said once that he would like to give to all his parishioners two little boxes of stickers as they left church, a box of red stickers and a box of green stickers. And he said, as you go out with your red stickers, I want you to put a red sticker on everything that will stop, everything that will perish. And then I want you to put a green sticker on everything that will last. And of course, as you leave the church with your red stickers and your green stickers, you put a red sticker on every car in the street. You put a red sticker on every house in the suburbs. You put a red sticker on every boat. You put a red sticker on every possession, every painting, every smart suit. And you're putting a green sticker on the promises because they'll last forever. And you're putting a green sticker on the foreheads of the people because they'll last somewhere forever. What a role we've got to play, and God is at work. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for these encouraging words and pray that you would help us not to lose heart. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.